Welcome to Political OD episode 40. Uh, our last one was just before the elections in Northern Ireland and uh, in England, that is the local government elections. Owen, was there anything in particular that we weren't expecting arising out of those elections? Well, it seems a long time ago now, uh, David, but I don't think so. Pretty much they went as we would have expected. The DUP vote sort of held up reasonably well. The Ulster Unionists had a disastrous election, pretty much. They they might argue otherwise, but it, it really wasn't a good result for them, particularly in their sort of bailiwick of local government, where they've traditionally been quite strong. The, the nationalist vote uh, mustered behind Sinn Féin, but I suppose we were expecting that, and the campaign that they ran, that wasn't a great surprise either. So I think the idea that it was sort of transformative or that the, this was something that um, reshaped Northern Ireland politics or changed it profoundly was actually you know quite, quite far from the truth, um, although it was obviously a concerning result for unionism in some ways and not a particularly encouraging result. Not encouraging in what way, Owen? Well, it it was a result that didn't show particularly that unionist parties are um, connecting with voters across the board in a way that they would hope to. Now, that's not necessarily to say that there's an issue with the union or that there's an issue with an All-Ireland Republic becoming a more tempting option to people as, as it's been portrayed. And I mean, that was BBC have uh, basically spent the last few months promoting the idea of a, of a so-called United Ireland and all of their programmes. I mean, that's not actually in play. It's not going to happen, I, I don't think, within either of our lifetimes. But at the same time, the unionist parties can and should do better in terms of uh, connecting with people and in terms of uh, honing a message that attracts a broader support base. I think you and I have both expected the DEP to do okay in these elections. I it may have been a surprise, though, to other people, because there was certainly a concerted effort in the months running off, in, including by ministers during the Perda period, to basically blame the DUP for everything uh, that was going wrong and making a concerted effort to, if not promote the Ulster Unions, to certainly say the DUP were preventing Stormont and that was a bad thing. Is therefore the vote for the DUP an endorsement of their policy of staying out of Stormont? Well, I think that potentially it, it probably is because the DUP's um, sort of poorest performance was in the election prior to that, and that's when the TUV had a bit of a minor surge, even though it didn't actually translate into state seats at the Stormont Assembly. And that was basically because there was a perception that the DUP were perhaps going a bit wobbly on the protocol issue. And the fact that they've subsequent uh, to that uh, shown that they're, that, that, well, it will basically taken up a position that we, we're not going back into power sharing until this is sorted out. And, and being quite firm on it seems to actually shore up the support. And they've also, I mean, they're drawing on this fact that everybody wants to kick them. And that, in all honesty, it's not just Sinn Féin or the SDLP or the Alliance Party, it's also the Ulster Unionist Party. And everybody's um, sort of focused on the DUP and their supposed iniquity. And I'm not a particular fan of the DUP, but it does have a countermanding uh, kind of effect where people rally behind them. So, uh, you know, from that perspective, being very focused on the DUP and very focused on what they're doing or not doing or their supposed uh, 
sort of iniquities is, is not you know doing particularly other unionist parties any favors on the, on the other side of that call, I think it is a slight wonderment uh, that Sinn Féin continues to manage to get out the large turnout, particularly in nationalist areas. Not a surprise as such, but it was certainly something that, um, and it's it's slight. The slight wonder is that, for the most part, in particularly in local government, the most that Sinn Féin is going to deliver might be some Irish signs and, and the higher rates bill. There's not a lot there uh, that Sinn Féin can show for anything, uh, for any of the vote for them. Uh, they haven't delivered a great deal, have they? They don't deliver anything. They're purely a populist party in a sense, and the one issue party in terms of the constitution. But yes, you're right, it's all to do with Irish language signs and basically sort of marking your territory. But in a sense, you know, unionists get a lot of criticism um, as supposedly not being progressive, supposedly being um, behind the times and everything else. And there's very little focus on the fact that actually nationalism is far more monolithic. And the fact that uh, people are filing in behind Sinn Féin uh, to vote for them in such numbers kind of demonstrates that. I mean, it's not strictly true because there are different uh, shades, but I mean, in terms of different viewpoints in terms of uh, diversity, in terms of uh, cultural difference. Actually, unionism is a, is a far less monolithic political idea than Irish nationalism. Um, uh, but yet that's not reflected in the kind of commentary that you see from most so-called experts, columnists and, and uh, commentators. There, there's also been comment that the unionist vote isn't out. I think that was particularly you know, focused on, on the eastern counties where in, in some areas, you know, in Ards and North Down, for example, I think it was a turnout of something like 40%. It was, it was relatively low. In terms of the union, you know, for all the apparent inevitability being preached by both nationalism and certain media elements, unionism, I don't think, actually believes that Irish unity is in any way coming down the line. There's no real threat to the union at the present time, a political threat to the union in the immediate term. And so they're not voting because there's nothing dramatic in the union's terms to, to actually get out and vote for. Well, you're absolutely right. And I mean, the thing that was perhaps most notable about this local government election was that the issues around local government were barely discussed. Maybe at a local level they were, or maybe by a few kind of independent candidates who campaigned on a particular issue. You know, Gary Hines in, in, in Lagan Valley, who's built well up... Well done, Gary, by the way. Uh, and, and, and well done, Gary, indeed. But, um, you know, he's built up his uh, reputation by very much uh, focusing on local issues and, and campaigning in a, in a very assiduous way. And that's, uh, you know, all, all the more power to him. But Sinn Féin's campaign, for example, was fought strictly on the basis that uh, somehow democracy was being thwarted by us not having uh, Michelle, the, the, the first minister. You know, the other parties too, it was either the, the Stormont issue with bring back Stormont or whatever, or it was, you know, broader issues around Brexit and this kind of thing. So the actual uh, remit of the councillors who were being um elected was was pretty much not discussed during that campaign. And I think that, that probably if you're looking at uh, unionist voters or 
you know, soft pro-union voters, you could say that they were particularly aware of that and that therefore they weren't motivated to get out and put their mark on the ballot paper. If we just move on a bit, they, our own elections were uh, just after the English local elections were, I thought, in a, in a terrific effort to manage expectations, the Conservative government actually managed to meet their worst expectations uh, and leave themselves with absolutely nowhere to go. Yeah, it reminds me of the Homer Simpson quote, uh, where I can't uh, remember, whether it was it Marge or somebody uh, said, Homer, I think you've reached uh, rock bottom. And he said, no, no, I can go way lower than that. <laughs> and um, yeah, the, the the expectation management kind of backfired because even the modest predictions that they were making uh, weren't weren't actually realized so i mean i just i i can't honestly see any silver lining really for the no. conservative party at the moment i don't and then, and then of course they they they, they didn't stuff. really try sorry they didn't really try to manage any expectations around the recent uh by-elections that were held in england there were three on the same day there uh, in very different constituencies for very different very different campaigns in each, as it were. There, there, there was one who just resigned in a fit of peak uh, over over Boris. Uh, there was one who um, had to resign because of uh, cocaine and prostitute um, stories uh, in the national newspapers. Uh, and then, of course, there was Boris's own seat, um, which was almost inevitable, I suppose, as that uh, parliamentary report uh, loomed. Those three elections turned out, obviously, with the three main parties in England. Well, sure, I even put the Lib Dems as a main party, but certainly the three national parties, uh, each getting a seat. Few issues out of that. One, of course, was the uh, win for the Conservatives in Uxbridge around the issue of low emission zones for cars. And I think the Conservatives seemed to say, "This is a great, this is a great win, great win." Rishi Sunak turned up to glad hand and say, I'm a winner, I'm a winner, I'm a winner. I think it was a very it was a very particular issue in a particular area. Uh, and then, of course, you have to look at the other two elections where they absolutely got trashed uh, by two different parties. And I think that must be extremely worrying. Yes. And there were things to be concerned about, I think, for certainly Labour, both the Labour and Conservative parties, because uh, actually, uh, I suppose the Liberal Democrats would have been um, you know, most encouraged by the results. But yes, the Conservatives uh, result in Oxbridge, that was a local issue, uh, uh, but an issue that, uh, you know, the Conser- that the Labour Party will have to to look at the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the idea of, of low emissions zones and these kind of policies just simply aren't popular with people. The Conservative Party, you know, they, they did try to imply that that that, that showed that there was uh, life in their strategy, but I mean it, it simply didn't. It was a it was a particular set of local circumstances. And yes, Rishi Sunak turned up at some sort of greasy spoon to <laughs> to glad hand and and uh, portray himself as the victor. But I think that that's probably the closest that he'll get to masquerading as a victor, because I don't think it's going to happen in the uh, general election next year, that's for sure. So, and it does seem to have created more problems in, in some ways for Labour, uh, that those by-elections, because you realize obviously there is now a, a distance between uh, the Mayor of London and Starmer, but also that the Lib Dem win was the absolute wipeout of the Labour Party in the in the Southwest. 
Uh, and that must be a concern because conservative vote went down substantially in uh, in, in, in the North. But that is the same as uh, in Northern Ireland, where the, the unionist voter didn't come out. The conservative voter simply didn't come out. It doesn't mean they won't come out in a general election to a candidate in a broad policy sense. So it's, it's a difficult one for Labour to navigate out of. Uh, it, I don't think those by-elections have turned out exactly as they might have expected. No, I don't think so. And by-elections are famously a kind of opportunity for voters to, to deal with the government of the day a bloody nose. But I mean, the, the issue that the Conservatives run into is the fact that they managed to patch together their winning coalition by winning uh, seats in the north of England and maybe losing seats in, sort of around, in and around London. And I mean, you're, you're alluding to the fact that uh, London itself has become kind of an unusual yeah. uh, conglomeration of, of, of seats, to be honest, uh, that doesn't... Uh, you know, represent the rest of the country. And I mean, the, the, the classic example is Sadiq Khan, who is this kind of appalling woke figure who just wouldn't resonate in, for instance, the north of England, but yet he's attached to the Labour Party and he he, he represents an element of Labour that is only too real. And the fact is that Keir Starmer will have to sort of either suppress or play down that element that kind of social extremely socially uh liberal isn't the word but uh because because it's it, it's uh because they're intolerant aren't they but that woke element in, in his party uh if he wants to, to build a coalition that will you know presumably win a, a majority at the next election indeed not consequential to uh the elections but subsequent to elections, you'd expect that discussion around the policies and the issues of, of the by-elections and the national issues to have uh, been dominated then in terms of how the parties are responding. Uh, but into this whole past week has, uh, how, do, how can I best put it? In this past week, Farage has once again thrust himself into the middle of the policy debate in a way that has seen institutions crumble uh, before his campaigning. A reminder perhaps to the two larger parties that for all their ideas of trying to find the popular policies that might actually get them elected or at least stop them collapsing in the case of the Conservatives, there is still a populist movement out there that can really shake some trees if it had the right leadership it's an extraordinary thing and um you know it is typical of nigel farage to zero in on issues that really resonate with people and at the moment this is one of the leading uh things that that's worrying people the idea that corporations the the civil service other institutions are thrusting forward with this very debatable and contested way of looking at the world and actually trying to almost outlaw people who don't fall into line with their view of the world. So the fact that he has managed to make this into such a, a resonant issue that's become so both controversial and the fact that he's actually, in the end, you know, won the battle by uh, forcing yeah. the resignation of, of the uh, chair of NatWest, 
um, is the, the chief executive of NatWest. The chief executive of NatWest, rather. So, so, so far. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the, now the pressure is on the rest of the board. It uh, just goes to show that these kind of things, and uh, th- there's so many, I, I read a good article actually in Unheard this week by Andrew Doyle, the, the kind of comedian come activist, who uh, took on the idea that so-called culture wars are a distraction. Um, and anything's a distraction if you want to talk about something else. <laughs> that was kind of the point that he was making. But I think that people are very concerned about this and that it's actually essential uh, to sort of broach these issues in terms of where our society is going and how it will end up. I saw this morning uh, reports that investors were coming after NatWest now and saying that it wasn't, they weren't focusing on the day-to-day uh, enough. Well, the, the, uh, I think the, this is... This is... This is a wonderful thing because um, it, it just goes, it, it, it's proving to corporations, banks, companies that you can't do this and get away with it, that, that it will have repercussions. And the other sort of famous incident, of course, was uh, Budweiser and, and uh, Bud Light and the fact that uh, they got into um, sort of issues around this kind of thing and, and, the, and their customer base just basically collapsed and uh the more that people use this kind of uh that that, that people bring pressure to bear and show corporations and institutions that this stuff if you force it on us it will have repercussions i think that's all to the good well i I think this is also a a feature of the end of cheap money you know that that whilst the banks were rather wokely just throwing out money uh in qe finance was cheap you could actually keep uh, your businesses going without a lot of cost and then you could focus on other things and get into the into other issues because you could then look as if you were on top of the agendas as it were because there wasn't oddly there isn't a lot of money to make in banks if there's no interest rates uh, you know if there's no real management to do other than keep the money ticking over in the accounts um that's changed, and I think in you know even businesses, uh, because money is tighter now, they are going to have to work an awful lot harder to make money. Uh, and these sort of issues may not be just the order of the day as they have been. I think there's going to be a fundamental change. And into that picture, we had the fiasco of lockdown, where basically all kind of financial constraints were jettisoned and yeah. um we just were, were printing money and spending it in a way that was always going to have effects afterwards and that that was completely um forgotten at the time in the sort of craze to impose these restrictions on us yes it's all right for Rishi Sunak saying he's getting out of the problem but he of course was the chancellor who who spent us into that problem as well uh, and probably gave a nod to the Bank of England to keep going quite happily as well yeah, well, exactly. And I mean, now he argues that he, he was not on the sort of side of of, in, of putting these things in place, but he was uh, the man who, who was in charge when that happened, or was at least in charge of the, the nation's purse strings. And he didn't, uh, as far as I remember, resign or anything like that over the, that issue. On, on Sunak, I think we, we come back to, he hasn't really had a lot of success beyond getting elected as a member of parliament. Uh, I mean, his chancellorship, didn't end well, I don't think. Um, and uh, a lot of the issues we have today are from from that. 
Uh, he lost the local elections. He's really lost in the by-elections. Uh, he couldn't even beat Liz Truss. Um, you know, so he's not exactly got a firm handle of success that people can have a lot of confidence in, which brings us to the protocol and the rigorous implementation that we're uh, heading towards, uh, albeit with a few tweaks from the Windsor framework. Uh, House of Lords report this week, uh, the most uh, it could agree to say was that the Windsor framework created an improvement. That is about as little as you can say about something uh, as is possible. Other uh, people put words in front of that, uh, you know, substantial improvement, uh, real improvement, great improvement. But those words were not in the report. The thing that struck me most in that report was just how much people don't know how this is going to work come end of September. Just not prepared for what's coming down the line uh, and, and an unworkable protocol being a little less unworkable still suggests a whole world of difficulties ahead. It's arguable whether it's even a little less uh, unworkable uh, in all honesty. And I mean, it has really steadily fallen apart since it was announced and was at the end of February or the start of March. The extraordinary thing about this report, yes, this this was how it was reported by uh, focusing in on some comments that the chairman of the committee had made. That it, it was his interview that described it as a distinct improvement and it said that there were no fundamental problems with the Windsor framework, but that wasn't contained in the report at all. And the fact was that looking through the evidence in quite a bit of detail, uh, as I did, the thing that was most striking about it was that, uh, you know, the, the what is it that uh, young people say now? It's a vibe or something. Well, it was almost, uh, it was a vibe, <laughs> the idea that it was a, an improvement that wasn't backed up actually by any practical evidence in the report. It was just people, very often the business representatives and lobbyists who told us that the protocol was a great thing in the, in the first instance, just saying, oh, isn't it great that we've all agreed? Isn't it great to have an agreement that will be so constructive? We'll sort out problems in the future. And we like it. And, and that, that's the essence of the idea that it was an improvement, whereas the idea that there were problems with it were backed up by very specific instances where businesses came forward and said, this is the issues that we're going to run into. We're asking government about this. We're not getting answers. It was detailed. It was granular. And it was backed up in the report by the committee asking questions repeatedly of the government, inviting them to clarify this, to tell us how you get from this promise that you made to this legislation that you're putting in place or to this interpretation of the document as it's being worked out now and going to be implemented in October. So the idea that the, <laughs> the improvement was even something that was evidenced or examined properly in the report, as opposed to the many, many instances of problems, is a bit over-egged, in my opinion, because it just was simply, we're, we're glad there's been an agreement. And how often do we see this in Northern Ireland as well? that so many people get excited by the fact that a negotiation re reaches a climax and it's almost immaterial what's agreed. It's just the fact that we're celebrating the fact that there is an agreement and this is a classic example. Well, indeed. Um, 
there's been quite a lengthy uh, statement put out by uh, Nigel Dobbs uh, off the back of this report, uh, basically saying this is absolutely nothing like what is required uh, to move uh, politics forward, and in particular to restore Stormont. Chatting before uh, we came uh, online, uh, they, there are two views of this. One, this might be Nigel simply trying to put some backbone into the DUP leadership up against maybe uh, an assembly party that just wants to go back because it wants to go back a bit like Doug Beattie, uh, you know, wants to go back, although there's no indication as to what would actually be achieved by going back, certainly not in respect of the protocol, uh, or this genuinely represents the overall DUP view that there is simply isn't enough here to justify going back because Frankly, the DUP is on a bit of a, a rope here in that they have to be seen not to roll over on the promise of some money or the promise of this or that, get into Stormont and hope that everybody forgets uh, what why they have gone back um, to sit in a dysfunctional uh, room. Well, I've said a few times that if the DUP do go back, what they have to do is provide a kind of honest explanation for why they're doing that, what's changed? Is it just that you simply don't have a choice that you're not getting anywhere with the current strategy? Or is it the fact that something's changed? And in all honesty, if what they get is the Windsor framework as it looks to be developing and some sort of meaningless uh, piece of legislation that says, oh, Northern Ireland's an integral part of the union and we all care very much about uh, that, I don't think people are going to be fooled by that. I think they need to be told openly and honestly if there is a change in mind uh, why that is occurring. And uh, just, you know, from the developments uh, that are that, that are taking place at the Parliament this week in the report and Nigel Dodd's statement, I don't see where that kind of argument is, is going to come from, that something uh, substantial has changed or that, that there's enough to... To, to take a different direction in, no, in the post, near future. Post, no, and post the uh, local government elections, of course, uh, that was declared a, an endorsement of their policy of staying out until the protocol was fixed. Um, so there really does have to be something very, very, very substantial to change for uh, that mandate that they claimed at the local government elections uh, can actually be uh, exercised. So they, they won't be going back according to themselves, unless something substantial happens. And I can't see that particularly happening. I can understand why the Ulster Unionists want to go back immediately, because they must fear the possibility of an election at the end of January, which is the current time for uh, the next election. If uh, they don't return to Stormont, whether that happens or not, uh, is, 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 I suppose, up in the air. But at the moment, it's the end of January. Whereas it might be that the DUP would have a, a better chance in January of going to, and, and amending their mandate if they had to, uh, in terms of going forward um, or hold by what they uh, what they have, and perhaps wait it out, uh, await this Conservative government out, uh, because even if you did get agreement with this Conservative government, could you trust it? And I don't think at the present time the trust is out there to believe anything that Chris Heaton-Harris or Rishi Sunak would tell you. Yeah, and as regards the Ulster Unionist Party, 
I actually understand their argument that uh, you need to get Stormont back up and running and that it's not achieving anything, uh, not operating power sharing. And I mean, I'm, I'm actually even quite open to that argument. But unfortunately, it's also been accompanied by a kind of look the other way approach to the protocol and the framework. Um, as if they don't even acknowledge that there's an issue there or if there is that the issue is sort of secondary in importance to other things that are happening. And that's just simply not the case. And I, I don't think it's a plausible unionist argument to argue that it is the case because, um, I mean, this is existential and we've been examining that in detail over the years, David. It really is uh, something that's absolutely central to our ability to play a full role in the United Kingdom. So that's of concern to every unionist. And you at least have to broach the subject. You can't just pretend that it isn't happening and roll out your single transferable press release for every circumstance that doesn't even broach the issues that are arising. Everything is going to go into events at the moment because everybody's going to go off on holiday. I believe you're heading off yourself. Yep. And there's not going to be much time before, you know, they come back to Parliament, I think, in September for a week or two. Before, and then everybody goes off again for the conference season. So I think realistically, we're probably not, maybe come back in October or sometime when the first elements of the protocol are going to be implemented. I think the green lane starts at the end of September. Maybe come back and take a look at how that's going and what we can. Uh, see uh, in the run-up to Christmas, which is always the crisis period for uh, politics in Northern Ireland. Uh, so maybe speak later in the year. Yes, yes. What chance? Another uh, Christmas negotiation and some kind of uh, <laughs> agreement on Christmas Eve or whatever. Yes, indeed. All right, Owen, uh, speak to you again. Enjoy your summer. Thanks, David. You too.